Russian President Vladimir Putin is claiming that the Wagner private military company is not a legal entity. Putin's comments add to the series of often bizarre twists that have followed the group's abortive revolt last month. Plus, what's next after this week's NATO summit? We have a problem when we think about how the war might end in terms of negotiated settlements, because we're simply just so far away from either Russia or Ukraine seeing a pathway to that kind of a solution. And later in the program, a new documentary is released chronicling the last international reporters to remain in Mariupol as Russian troops attack the city. Today is Friday, July 14th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Miller in Washington. 16 Iranian-made Shahed drones were shot down by Ukrainian forces over the country's southern and eastern regions. The head of the Dnipro-Petrovsk region administration says that six others were shot down in that sector. However, Ukrainian air defenses could not succeed in destroying all the attacking drones. Some two-story residential buildings and an administrative building, together with a utility and transport company, were damaged. Also, the governor of Russia's neighboring Kursk region reported that a drone had crashed in the city of Kurchatov, a Soviet-era town built on the banks of a cooling pond for their Kursk nuclear power station that's still in service, and the drone caused damage to an apartment building. In addition, three people were wounded when a car exploded in a residential area of Belgorod, the capital of Russia's southern Belgorod region that borders Ukraine. Joined now by Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, this night was uh, was quite silent night for the capital. So this time, uh, the main regions it was affected by drone attacks and it was targeted by by Russian drones uh, is uh, Dnipropetrovsk region, the the city of Dnipro itself, the outskirts of the city. And Krivirik, the city of Krivirik, which is also in that area. So what we know, uh, we know that in total there were 17 drones, uh, 16 were destroyed. Uh, one drone uh, hit the destination. Uh, according to what was confirmed so far, there are damages and uh, even quite heavy destructions uh, in the in the area of heat. Uh, mostly it's an uh, industrial area uh, and uh, in general the city of Krivirich is uh, quite an industrial uh, city so it's a, it has a lot of critical infrastructure in there. Uh, also it was reported that some residential areas were affected uh, as a result of debris fall and uh, uh, just because uh, everything is located around these industrial uh, areas are residential areas, basically. Uh, so uh, also we have confirmation that uh, seven intelligent drones were destroyed uh, over the night as well. Again, the main uh, the main attack was happening in the south uh, and in the east, and Dnipropetrovsk could be considered like in between of those. Now that's Ukraine, but one of the questions I want to ask you about is that Russian authorities are also saying that there was a, a drone attack in Kurchatov, which is uh, a town in the Kursk region, and also where they have a nuclear power station which is still in service. What do we know uh, about the reports coming out of that region? 
Uh, yeah, the reports are uh, the reports are coming from Russian sources and from Russian officials. We don't have any confirmations from any other uh, either Ukrainian or international sources, at least at this point. Uh, according to uh, Russian uh, sources, uh, the drone exploded some something like four kilometers away from the station. Uh, so it was not uh, that particularly direct uh, risk uh, or direct target. But again, uh, we do not have any independent uh, confirmation of that uh, or anything we can uh, verify, any information, additional information that we can use to verify this data. So we can only consider a Russian official uh, statement uh as, as the source. Uh, but again, um, we are hearing not only, so not only about this, uh, particular drone attacks, but also about other drone attacks happening uh, around Russia. And again, um, most of them are only coming from Russian sources. The confirmation, I mean, uh, about these attacks are coming from Russian sources. And I thank you very much for those updates. Anna Chernikova reports for VOA from Kiev, Ukraine. Anna, once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Russian President Vladimir Putin is claiming the Wagner private military company is not a legal entity. From the Associated Press, Charles Deledesma continues our coverage. Putin's comments add to the series of often bizarre twists that have followed the group's abortive revolt last month. Putin told a Russian newspaper late on Thursday, referring to the Wagner Group, that there is no law on private military organizations. It just doesn't exist. Putin says Wagner had rejected an offer to keep its troops in Ukraine, where they have played key battlefield roles under the leadership of their direct commander. All of them, Putin says, could have gathered in one place and continued to serve and nothing would have changed for them. Putin has previously said the militia had to choose whether to sign contracts with the Russian Defense Ministry, move to neighboring Belarus or retire from service. I'm Charles Tilladesma. Following the NATO summit and a brief stop in Helsinki, U.S. President Joe Biden has returned home, but not before saying, Putin's already lost the war. Putin has a real problem. How does he move from here? What does he do? And so the idea that there's going to be what vehicle is used, he could end the war tomorrow. He could just say, I'm out. But what agreement is ultimately reached depends upon Putin and uh, what he decides to do. I caught up with Ginny Mathers, a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University, and began our conversation by asking her what she thought the key takeaways were from the meetings. Well, I think there's been a certain amount of, of miscommunication and misunderstanding, perhaps within the NATO ruling group, as well as from, you know, around the surrounding communications and, and how we've interpreted what's happened. I think um, Ukraine clearly wanted more out of this summit than they got. Um, and they clearly wanted not necessarily to be instantly offered NATO membership, which I think though Ukrainian believed was, was a realistic prospect uh, at this point, but at least to be given a clear pathway and a, a more concrete timetable towards actual membership. So in other words, you know, pointing the way towards this is what you have to do. Uh, this is the timetable we're thinking of. Uh, it's definitely going to happen. And, and this is what we have in mind. And that's not what they got. They got much more wishy-washy language um, which sort of implied that uh, Ukraine is a very long way away from being ready to join NATO. And 
so that was a bit insulting for the Ukrainians, uh, as well as suggestions that they're not grateful enough for, for the support from NATO countries. But also there's a worry, I think, that this this outcome might give Russia uh, more encouragement to drag the war on uh, and might see it as, as a reason to, um, you know, just carry on indefinitely, that there's the longer the, the war goes on, the less likely it is that, that Ukraine will be asked to join NATO uh, while that's happening. And so this will be an incentive uh, for Russia to really dig dig in. And I want to ask you about that, because one of the things that President Biden said is that, you know, Russia has already lost the war and that President Putin could end it tomorrow just by choosing to leave. Although, Russia has continuously said that it's going to continue to press forward with its objectives, not be deterred by the U.S. and the West, by their actions with Ukraine. So where do you see the the conflict going politically, given that the, the, the message from NATO was Ukraine can join? After the war is done, but there's always been this concern that if a if a ceasefire or an armistice is reached, it would only give Russia time to entrench and then resume the conflict later on. Yeah, I think exactly. This is this is really, really where we are. The problem is that <clears throat> Russia has shown no interest. Sorry, Russia has shown really no interest in um, negotiating really towards a compromise. Russia has insisted throughout that um, any agreement will have to involve <clears throat> Russia maintaining its control over the four regions of, Bel- of uh, Ukraine that it has uh, already claimed uh, to have, um, you know, incorporated into into the Russian territory. So I think we have a problem when we think about how the war might end in terms of negotiated settlements, because we're simply just so far away from either Russia or Ukraine seeing a pathway to that kind of a solution. I think both countries are still convinced uh, that they can win. Uh, Both countries are absolutely determined to put every effort into continuing the war to a successful conclusion. Um, And nobody is really talking seriously about whether a compromise could be reached, what it might look like, um, who was willing to sort of give ground anywhere. So I think we're still quite a long way away from from an actual solution to this war. I want to turn attention to domestic politics within Russia, because since the Wagner group revolt or the mutiny, depending on how one wants to frame it, you know, President Putin put out a really unique statement today about the status and legality of the Wagner Group. This is after he already met reportedly with a three-hour meeting with Prigozhin. And even more recently, the other day, Major General Ivan Popov, who says he was relieved of duties after painting a rather bleak picture of, of his time on the front line. So this is a second military commander who who's really aired grievances about how the Russian top brass is handling the fight in Ukraine. So what do you see as the political landscape in Russia right now? I think it's it's complicated and I think it's shifting. Um, I think that the idea that Putin is in control of everything is really not realistic. I think that has been very much shown to be a, you know, a false understanding of, of how politics in Russia work. There are different factions, there are different interest groups um, that are clearly have got an interest in things moving in different directions and, and are sort of seeking to, to gain more power behind the scenes. 
um, I think there's very significant problems within the armed forces and have been for quite some time. Um, and the fact that that some of these you know, senior military commanders are actually being willing to voice these concerns uh, is is very serious. And the fact that they are really mirroring the kinds of things that Prigozhin has been saying um, indicates that these are very deep-seated problems that the, the senior commanders are, um, you know, unwilling to deal with, basically. The people at the level of, you know, defence minister and, and deputy defence minister are very reluctant to try and fix these problems because in doing so, they would have to really unpick layers of corruption and layers of all kinds of, of personal relationships, uh, which are kind of keeping the whole ship going. Um, and so it's it's a, a very complicated one. So there's a lot at stake here. Um, and, you know, Putin has been trying to sort of paper over the cracks in various ways and, and to indicate that, that everything's fine, everything's proceeding according to the plan. Uh, but clearly it's not. And I think the more things come unstuck, uh, the more uh, difficult it's going to be for Putin to really to present this image of a man who is still in some kind of control of the country. Ginny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University in Wales. Jenny, thank you very much for your time and analysis today. Thank you. On Friday, the U.S. said it stands ready to support a just and lasting peace in Ukraine. And looking to next week, on Monday, the Black Sea Grain Initiative expires. But as of our recording deadline, Moscow hasn't released any statements on extending it. We'll have additional updates on these and other stories at our website, voanews.com slash Flashpoint. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. As American journalist Evan Gershkovich remains in custody in a Russian prison, his family and colleagues describe the fight to free him. For Liam Scott in Washington, Steve Karish has the story. I just try to take it day by day. For Danielle Gershkovich, the arrest of her brother Evan in Russia still doesn't feel real. She says the family are anxiously waiting for updates on when the Wall Street Journal reporter will be allowed to come home. Danielle Gershkovich is the sister of detained American journalist Evan Gershkovich. We're um, just trying to, you know, learn everything that we can and... Um, just tried to mostly stay strong, tried to keep the spotlight on, on Evan's case. Evan Gershkovich was on assignment March 29th when Russia detained him on espionage charges. Gershkovich, the journal, and U.S. officials deny the allegations and say he's being unjustly detained. General counsel for the journal, Jason Conti, says Russia has denied requests for bail and more consular visits. And each day that Gershkovich remains behind bars is a gut punch. In response to a request for comment, Russia's Washington embassy directed VOA to a statement from presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who has flagged a possible prisoner swap. U.S. President Joe Biden said Thursday that the process for that is underway, with Gershkovich jailed already for more than 100 days. His family and colleagues are trying to stay strong. Paul Beckett is the Wall Street Journal Washington bureau chief. I don't think there was anything about Evan or the Wall Street Journal in particular that singled him out. He was an American there for the taking in Russia's view, and that really could have been anyone, and I think that's what makes it um, dispiriting to see journalism treated as a crime. 
Russia has a poor press freedom record, but it's not alone in jailing Western journalists. Washington Post columnist Jason Rezaian spent 544 days in Tehran's even prison. He had this advice for Gershkovich. This ordeal will end, but it's hard to know when. And I think the uncertainty uh, that prisoner uh, in Evan's situation is subjected to is, is one of the hardest things about it. Around the world, more and more reporters are at risk of arrest, like Gershkovich, including in China, Russia, and Iran, says Rezaian. My bigger concern is these problems are, are getting worse and worse. More and more Americans, more and more journalists are facing them around the world. But with it being more dangerous for journalists to report from inside Russia, audiences are left in the dark. For Liam Scott in Washington, Steve Karish, VOA News. A year and a half after Russia invaded Ukraine, unexploded mines and munitions can be found in nearly 40% of Ukrainian territory. Ukrainian allies, Japan, Cambodia, Poland, and the United States are assisting with demining efforts. VOA Eastern European Bureau Chief Miroslava Gengadze visited a Polish facility where Cambodian specialists were training Ukrainian emergency workers to use Japanese demining equipment. At a facility in Poland last week, specialists from Cambodia showed Arseny Dyatchenko and his colleagues at Ukraine's state emergency service how to use the mining equipment. Dyatchenko demonstrates how the Japanese-made advanced landmine imaging system, or ALICE, works. You can see it's a metal object inside the ground. The special lines after the GPR scanning, and uh, I think it's a PMN2, anti-personal blast mine. It's digging more than two centimeters inside the ground. And if you look at the screen, you have to de determine is it mine or it's just a piece of metal. Advanced mining equipment and support are critical for Ukraine. According to Ukrainian government estimates, unexploded mines and munitions resulting from Russia's war on Ukraine can be found in 40% of Ukrainian territory. Our urgence is a, a PPE, personal protective equipment, the mining machines and especially metal detectors like the ALICE. The Cambodian Mine Action Center is training the Ukrainian deminers. After sessions in Cambodia, the group traveled to Poland to finalize the training. Cambodian Mine Action Center Deputy Director Aum Famru explained that Cambodia has been dealing with the landmines and unexploded ordnance resulting from the nearly three decades of war that ended in the late 1990s. Over the past decade, the experienced Cambodian deminers have worked in numerous countries in Africa and the Middle East. Ukraine has to have uh, expertise, training, equipment and um, support from other countries to solve the problem because I, we can see that uh, they will have a lot of problems after the war ends, um, considering the situation there. So. I think it will be a big problem. Despite aligning with Russia and China, Cambodia joined nearly 100 United Nations member countries in co-sponsoring a resolution condemning Russia's invasion. Cambodian specialists have been involved in a demining project with support from the Japanese government and developers. 
Alice developer Machioki Sato said that Ukraine would probably require a substantial number of the devices in the coming years. Even after the war is finished, maybe mine clearance operation have to have to continue maybe more than 10 years. So to speed up these operation, I, I, I really hope that uh, ADIS can contribute someone. Ensuring the safety of the land remains a complex and expensive long-term endeavor. Several countries, including the United States, Germany, Canada and France, have provided the mining assistance to Ukraine. Japan this year allocated $45 million to support the mining initiatives in the Eastern European country. Recent estimates from the United Nations and the Ukrainian Ministry of Economy suggest that cleaning the existing hazardous materials in Ukraine could cost over $30 billion and potentially take decades to complete. Miroslava Gongadze, VOA News, Legionovo, Poland. And finally... Associated Press video journalist Mistilov Chernov had just broken out of Mariupol after covering the first 20 days of the Russian invasion of the Ukrainian city and was feeling guilty about leaving. Chernov and his colleagues were the last international reporters to remain in the city as Russian troops attacked, but they had too little time to leave safely. He and his colleagues, photographer Evgeny Malolekka and producer Vasilya Stepaneko, were sending crucial dispatches from a city under full-scale assault. The day after, a theater with hundreds of people sheltering inside was bombed, and he knew no one was there to document it. That's when Chernoff decided he wanted to do something bigger. One of the main goals for it was to be seen as with as many people as possible. So every time he gets a wider audience, uh, it makes me um, happy and I feel that the mission that we took on ourselves is being fulfilled. So my job now is to keep, keep doing this. He filmed some 30 hours of footage over his days in Mariupol, but poor and sometimes no internet connections made it extremely difficult to export anything. All told, he estimates only about 40 minutes of that footage successfully made it out to the world. Their reporting was awarded two Pulitzer Prizes, including the prestigious Public Service Award and for breaking news photography. We were lucky enough uh, to, to be in this very short period of time when it was still chaos at the checkpoints. And we were lucky enough that there were people who risked uh, their lives to, to help us to get these images and ourselves out. Uh, because... And that happened a lot uh, in Mariupol. The doctors, the police, the military, the just civilians, everyone kept telling us, show the world what is happening to our city. Please show the world. And that was kind of our mission. That's what we tried our best to do. And Vasilya Stepaneko says that every person in the documentary is important. The most important scene is to remember about these people who are who were killed and will never see this world again. And I hope that the memory of them will live forever. The film, 20 Days in Mariupol, is a joint project between the Associated Press and PBS Frontline. It comes to a handful of theaters around the United States beginning Friday, January 14th, starting in New York and Chicago. 
that's going to do it for us this week. For up-to-date coverage of the war in Ukraine 24 hours a day, be sure to visit our website, voanews.com, or follow us on our social media platforms. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, we thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Steve Miller. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.